So we are in Joshua. We're in Joshua 3 and 4 today, and uh, I spent a lot of time reading through this this week. And, and when I was reading through it, there was a, a word that popped out to me. Uh, I love words. I love the history of words. I love to make up words. Uh, words matter to me. And so I was reading this uh, text, and there was a word that popped out to me that I hadn't heard forever. I just hadn't heard this word forever, and I just started thinking about it. And then I as I do as an ADD guy, I, I went on a tangent where I thought, well, what other words are out there that I don't, I'm not regularly using in my language that I want to bring into my language? And so I, I looked up some, and I found some that I liked, and I'm going to share them with you today. Maybe you've heard these words today. These are words that I'm going to try to get into my vocabulary. Maybe these are words that you want to put into yours. So the first word that I saw was kerfluffle. Has anybody used the word kerfluffle here recently? Kerfuffle means a, a, co a commotion or a fuss, especially one caused by conflicting views. You might say it this way. We hope a kerfuffle doesn't break over, out over the choice of paint color that we pick here. The other word that I picked was crapulous. Crapulous. I don't know if you've ever used that word before. Its, its definition is caused by or showing the effects of alcohol. And you might say this. Uh, someone assumed the pastor might be a little crapulous, but then they realize that he's just that weird, that he's just really that weird. Another word that I, I really liked was, was this word, henceforth. I say that from time to time, henceforth. Henceforth means from this time on or from that time on. And so you might say something like, the church has decided that henceforth we will replace the bread in our communion services with bacon. <laughs> henceforth. And the other word that I really liked was facetious. Facetious, that's a word that I've used before. Maybe you've used that word, and it means to treating serious issues with deliberately inappropriate humor flippant. So you would say, like, that last statement about bacon was very facetious, right? Or was it? <laughs> we'll find out, right? The word that caused me to, to really dig into this, to really kind of uh, start this trend of finding words, was a word called consecrate. The word is consecrate. And that is the word that we want to spend our time looking at today. It's such a unique word. It's a word that we don't put in our vocabulary. It's a word that we as Christians don't talk about a whole lot. And that word means this, to make or declare something typically a church, sacred, dedicated, formally to a religious or divine purpose. And so we're going to ex explore the term consecrate a little bit today in our teaching in Joshua 3 and 4. What I hope to to help you understand in this whole sermon here today is that there's a priority that God has for you and I in the way that we live life. And it is this, that God is always more concerned on where his people are spiritually than where his people are physically. God is always more concerned about where his people are spiritually than where his people are physically. It doesn't matter what you feel like your calling is. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. God's primary design is that you would not just reach your potential in your human effort, but God's heart would be that you would build in strength and faith your relationship with him first. That is his heart. That is what matters to him. I spent a good majority of my life considering this question. What do I want to do? What do I want to do? I spent a lot of my early years growing up figuring out, what do I want to do? Maybe you are wrestling with that question today if you're in here. What is it that I'm going to do? Maybe you're still in an older adult and you're still wrestling is, 
with the question, what am I going to do? We put an enormous amount of pressure on each other in that question. When you get towards the end of high school, a pressure cooker begins to build. People pressing on you like, hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What, what are you going to do? Pressure created by all of us by that question. So listen, philosophically, I think we're asking the wrong question. I think we're just completely missing it here. I think we're asking the wrong question. The better question for you and I is who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Because who you are informs what you do. There is so much tragedy in life that happens when you put that reverse, when you take what you do and try to inform who you are. What you do varies from season to season, but who you are in your identity should remain constant, always secure in who we are. Foundationally, this is God's heart towards you. We get worked up in a froth about what we're going to do or what God wants us to, to get into but over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture, in God's people, God values our identity. He values us rooting ourselves in who he has said that we are. And if we're rooted right, everything flows downhill from there. For the Christian, that question of who you are is profoundly answered in the life and the works and the word of Jesus Christ. It says in Scripture that, he, that you are not your own that he bought you with a price, that the only person that gets to speak into your purpose and your identity, who you are, is the one that created you. Nobody else gets that job. We should be concerned more about who Christ has said we are than what we will do. The reasons that the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years in the time of Moses, in the time of Joshua, isn't that they're not doing what God wants them to do. It's that they forgot who they were. They forgot who they were by faith in Jesus and in God. God's holy people forgot who they were. They forgot their identity. And I would contend to you that we often do the same thing today. And so today in Joshua, we're going to be reminded of what God cares about most. Us, our hearts, our relationship with him. That he would desire for us to remain rooted in him rooted in him. And so let's pick up our text in Joshua 3 today. Last week we discovered a little bit about Rahab. Rahab's faith was just incredible, uh, a faith that points us towards Christ. Rahab was pulled out of destruction. She was brought out of God's wrath towards the city of Jericho, uh, just an uh, unholy city. And it was her faith that brought her out, her faith and nothing else. If you remember, Rahab was a prostitute, a harlot. It was her faith that God recognized that brought her out, that made her stand out. And in that agreement that she made with the Israelite spies in her house, she, she put a scarlet cord around her window, a red cord that looked backwards to the Passover when God called his people to put blood over the door to deliver them from Egypt, and it pointed forward to the sacrificing atonement that Jesus Christ would have in his blood for our sins. Rahab is a beautiful story. Today, we're going to move backwards, and we're going to talk about how the Israelites got into Jericho. We're going to be talking about how the Israelites literally stepped foot into the promised land. And so let's read this together in Joshua 3, starting in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and, then, and they set out for Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, 
he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits, which is about 1,000 feet in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself. There, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And so we have arrived at the day that the Israelites have dreamed about ever since the days that they were in Egypt, the day that they were going to cross over the Jordan from the west into the promised land in the east, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. The city that they were staying in is not good enough any longer for them. They're headed home. Now, maybe in your head, as we've talked about the Israelites, as we've talked about this nation, as we've talked about them wandering in the, in the wilderness, you've had this idea that there's just like a few hundred people with Joshua, and they're wandering around here trying to find a way into this promised land. Maybe you've even got to, well, there's probably a thousand or 10,000 people that are kind of in this, kind of wandering, getting in, having to cross the Jordan. Maybe you didn't realize we're talking about a significant amount of people here more than what you could realize. Most scholars and experts would say that there are multiple millions of people in the nation of Israel that is getting ready to cross over the Jordan River. Two to three million people <laughs> wandering in the desert, getting into the Promised Land. This is a significant movement, a monumental task. Joshua has a huge responsibility in from him. And this movement in this journey that we're witnessing isn't just about God's people moving into the promised land, but this is a very snapshot of what faith looks like in uncertain days. Faith that is anchored in God. This speaks towards us today. It's good news for us. And so here's where we're going to start. It would be easier, far easier, for God to have taken the promised land and brought it to his people than to take his people into the promised land. He has that kind of power. He could have just brought the promised land to them. He didn't have to take them on this journey. God could, by the word of his power, by his fingers or his spirit, could have just said, you know what, in Egypt, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna kill the Pharaoh. I'm gonna put my people in charge. We're gonna rule this land here. This is good enough for me. But that's not what God has for his people. It's not what he, he wants. He could have blessed them exactly where they were. But there's a principle here that speaks to our faith today as much as it did to the Israelites in that day. Is that God meets you just where you're at, but he never intends to leave you there. God meets you just where you're at, but he never intends to leave you there. We want blessing and contentment. It is our heart that we just want to stand still and we want God, bless me with prosperity, bless me with contentment, bless me with satisfaction. I don't want to go anywhere. But that is never the heart of God. God loves you just where you're at, but his desire is to never let you remain there. 
We are made to pursue and walk after him, towards him, pursuing him, building our trust and our faith in him. That is what this movement from Egypt into the promised land is about. It's about building faith, hope, and commitment to the Lord. It is why they are circling in the wilderness. Does God say, be still and know? Yes, he says, be still and know. Like, know that I'm God. Reverence. Know your position underneath me. Know that I uphold it all. But God moves his people to grow his people. God moves his people to grow his people. Growing in faith, maturity, and blessing is often the result of God's divine relocation. It is just true. In this passage, his people are moving into the promised land. He is moving them from a city 12 miles away from the banks of the Jordan. For you and I, we don't often face a physical relocation in our growth and maturity. Some of you will. More often, God moves us divinely by allowing struggle and trial and persecution and challenges to come in our lives. He moves us through those things. His desire isn't to harm you, but to move you, to grow you. And that's what we see here in Joshua. Now notice that what happens when they get to the banks. They don't do anything. They just camp there for three days. They know that they're going to have to cross the river. They just don't know how they're going to do it. And this isn't just some passive river that we're talking about here. This is the, the Jordan River in springtime. All the spring rains have collected. This isn't just some passive river. This is a torrid, massive river. It is a difficult challenge for them to cross this path here. The river would have been at this point about a football field across. It would have ranged in the depth of 10 to 12 feet. It would have dropped nine feet every mile. And they had to sit there for three days. And listen to that. Well, we got to go across it. Not once did he mention what we're going to do to get across it. Just camp there. And then we notice in this scripture, what does God say through Joshua to his people? He doesn't say, hey, start cutting some things down. We need to build some boats here. Get some stuff. We need some ropes. We got to throw it across. We need to get there. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say anything about starting to make effort. But what does Joshua say to God's people? Consecrate yourself. Huh? Consecrate yourself because God's going to blow your socks off tomorrow. God's going to do a work here that you're not going to believe. Look at the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence within you, and follow it. That's it. Don't do anything. Look at it, watch it, follow it, and hey, consecrate yourself. So a real practical definition of what it means to consecrate ourselves is this. Consecration is a voluntary act of committing oneself to worship, prayer, and service to God. Voluntary act of committing ourselves, oneself to worship, prayer, and service to God. The word consecrated literally translates into being united by force with the sacred. Being united by force with the sacred. What he is saying here is devote yourself to God. Give yourself to him. It is the very same thing that Paul talks to us about in Romans. That because of Christ, because of his blood, because we are giving access to the Father through the atonement of Christ... He says this in Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, be a 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to give ourselves fully, devotedly to the Lord to use us as instruments of his divine authorship in his story. We are to be a living sacrifice. This is the heart of our Lord. Look, there have been and there will be challenges and things in your life that seem like they're impossible, things that seem unbearable, and we can, by our own strength and understanding, task ourselves with how we're going to overcome or fix that situation. But that is not what the Lord has asked you. That is not what he wants from you in that moment or in that season. Consecrate yourself. Devote yourself to him. Trust him. Because of the work that Christ has done on the cross, our greatest privilege is to hunger after God and seek him with all of our hearts. We have been granted access through Christ to a holy, infinite creator God, and it is the greatest privilege of our lives to hunger after God and seek him with all of our hearts. And so when those trials come, and we know that they will come, when uncertainty is present, first ye seek the Lord. Be honest with the Lord. God, this is hard. I can't see through this right now. Expose your heart and say, Lord, not me, but you. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm with you. Help me to walk through this faithfully by you. It doesn't mean that we don't have effort in it. It just means that we don't have effort without him. First, that's what God wants to use Joshua to teach his people here. Don't worry about the how, just worry about me. I know this looks crazy, and I know you've been camped by this river for three days, but hunger after me, and we'll take care of this. And so the ark goes forward, the people of God follow, and this is what happens in Joshua 3. And so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with a priest bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest began bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks through the time of harvest. The waters, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in heaps very far away at Adam, the city besides Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. They're crossing over. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. I bet they did not see that happening. <laughs> I, I, what we see here is that the Jordan is heaped up in two different spots. It's by the city of Adam and the Dead Sea. And what we would know from that is there about, there's about 15 miles of dry ground exposed for these millions of people to cross over it. 15 miles for God's people 
to walk over. Now, their ancestors most definitely would have talked to them about the Red Sea. They would have probably have heard the story of God parting it. But knowing the history of the Israelites and their ability to forget everything, I would rest pretty assured that none of them would believe that they would see that for themselves. That would be outside of human capacity to fathom that a river could be parted to expose 15 miles of dry ground. No ropes, no boats. He could have made a hovercraft. He didn't. No helicopters. Parted it. (laughs) Boom. Part of the reason that we consecrate ourselves to the Lord, to live as his, is simply because he possesses greater tools and abilities than you and I do. He possesses greater tools and abilities than you and I do. And it is always most often the case that this is true, that God's way through is most always different than what you could reason. God's way through is most always different than what you and I could reason. You and I live in a world controlled by logic and reasoning. We exist in what we know about the world exists in logic and reasoning. We are held captive by undeniable laws like gravity, like all of Newton's laws, inertia. And we are limited by what we have learned, what we have done in our lives, what we can see. When you and I face obstacles, when trials come into our lives, what happens because of our limitations and our being bound by scientific laws, our options are very limited. We see a situation in front of us and think, well, one of two or three things might happen here. This is going to happen, or this is going to happen, and if everything just goes crazy, then maybe that will happen. This is going to happen, I'm going to do this, and everything blows up, this is going to happen. What if God wants to part it? What if he wants to part the sea? Did you think of that? Did you account for that? What if in devoting to yourself, him, yourself to him first, he knocks your socks off? He parts the sea. God's way through is most always different than what you could reason. He's not limited by the smallness of our minds. He's not limited by our capabilities of what we've learned. And he is not bound by the laws of physics. We are much better served to seek him first, to pray to him first, than just to lean on ourselves. We learn that here with our people in Joshua 3. And so God's nation walks across dry ground, a river that was parted and crossed over from the eastern bank or the western bank into the eastern bank into the promised land. And this is what happens in Joshua 4. It says that the people came out of the Jordan on the 10th day, 10 days to cross over it. Of the, well, maybe I take that back. Ten days on the first month, and they encamped in Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. So, and he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, 
which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. There are 12 stones that no human being could have ever touched if not for the fact that God parted the water. And God commands that those 12 stones be taken out of the riverbed and stacked in a camp near Gilgal as a memorial to what God has done for them. Those 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel that would go on and conquer the promised land and divide it. And God commands them to remember what I have done for you here. Do not forget what I have done. You know, there is something in this that speaks how God has wired us. Something fascinating in the way that he's made us. This isn't the first time that God has asked his people to make memorials. This isn't the first time that God has done something so that we would remember what he has done, and this won't be the last time that he does it. It is almost as if there is something eternal within us that links moments and places in our past to the significance of our present and our hope for the future. It is something that is hardwired in us, meaning that we find meaning in our history for our from our past and our present that looks forward to our future. But the Lord, in all of his wisdom, knows our brokenness. He knows that the sickness of sin ravages in our bodies. And he knows that we forget. <laughs> we love to remember, but we forget. And so God forces us to do things that causes us to remember what he's done. Think about this. You can drive in your car, and literally a song can kick on that you haven't heard in years. 35, 10, how many years? And immediately in that moment, you are taken back to a place in your life where that song served as a significant part of your story. On my phone, I have this app called Spotify. Spotify has this playlist called Time Capsule. And they use some sort of algorithm to know what songs I listened to when I grew up. It's crazy. And I listened to this the other day, and I'm telling you, songs played and feelings popped up to me and memories came in my head of when those songs played in my life. Isn't that crazy? We are wired to link our past into our present and our hope for our future. It's crazy. We do it with stories and toys and trinkets and keepsakes. We, we hold these things and we go backwards into the moments that we held those into our hands. There's something about our design here. God knows our sickness. He knows our brokenness because sin and death has ravaged us. Sin and death which God does not love. Those are not things of God. And in our forgetting, we forget to remember what God has done for us already in our lives. We become these present living people, future-oriented goals that forget what God has done for us in our past, and we very much live in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, in a state where we say to God, what have you done for me lately? Lord, what have you done for me lately? Show up here. How cruel could you be, God? 
Where are you? I imagine this grieves the Lord. That his creation has been so corrupted in a fashion that they would quickly forget the beauty in which God has sustained us for so long. Because if we really wanted to, if we sat down and enforced ourselves, we would remember God's goodness and faithfulness to us. How God has blessed us richly in the past. How we are blessed to be sitting here today. But here's the reality. You want hope built from new revelation. In many ways, what God has done for us in the past means very, very little to us. If he isn't doing it now. When we want it to, how, he wants, how we want him to. But in Joshua, God reminds us through this, these 12 stones that God wants a faith. He wants a rooted faith that remembers. God wants a rooted faith that remembers. Just because God hasn't shown up in your life today, in the way that you want him to, in the moment that you want him to, doesn't mean that he's not real. It doesn't mean that he's not there. He might come to you again in a different way. He has a different way through this than what you may reason. Don't anchor your faith on what God will do for you, but what he has done for you. And he has done it time and time again for us and for his people. This beautiful history that we're reading through in Joshua is the history of our faithful people. Now, are all you faithful? God, in his faithfulness, in his people. These very people that crossed over the Jordan are our people, and he was good to them. And we need to remember that. And so listen, Christian, friend, God is not satisfied with you staying where you're at. He is going to move you. And listen, whatever happens, whatever comes of this, whatever trials you may face, we have a God that has a proven track record of being faithful. So be strong and courageous. Look to this example here in Joshua 3 and remember that God moves his people because divine relocation grows his people. God moves his people to grow his people. And instead of fearing it, Consecrate yourself. Give yourself to him. Devote yourself to him. Because he's probably got a different way through it than you think. And as you walk in that trial, don't forget to look back and remember he's still here. Remember what he's done for you. Don't let your memory and your lack of remembrance rob you of the gratitude and contentment that God has given to you. The gratitude that we can have in what God has given to us. He is the one who has always sustained us. He's the one that has always guided us wherever the soles of our feet have ever touched. Today, in Joshua 3, and in the future. It's a beautiful faith to be lived out here in Joshua 3 and 4. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and uh, we are just going to be honest about maybe some anxiety, uh, the fact that we have so much unknown in our lives. We don't always know 
the means in which we're going to get through that. There seems to be huge obstacles that face your people here, Lord. Lord, help us to just devote ourselves. To know that your movement isn't a cause for a harm, but a cause for growth. And that we would just consecrate ourselves to you. That we would remember your faithfulness, Lord. That we would understand that your way is different than what we could reason. And that we would hunger after you with all that we have. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your awesome name. Amen. If you're in here today and, and you need prayer, if there are trials in your life, if, if things are difficult right now, or if you just need a specific prayer about something, know this, we, we'd love to pray over you. You're welcome to come up here and sit on the front row and we'll have our prayer team pray over you. Uh, if you need other prayer, we have our prayer room available to you right outside of this door over here. Uh, we're gonna sing one last song uh, devoted to our Father. Would you stand and sing with me?